This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Darren Hood, thanks everyone for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a very special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. We are wrapping up memory lane today. I think this is something we will revisit from time to time. But today we are going to share by way of request some nightmares, some some things that I have experienced over the course of my career. And I started off this series by sharing some success stories, two weeks of success stories, a total of six. And then last week I shared three nightmares and the goal was to provide three more nightmares on tonight. And as I mentioned last week, I had to be careful about what I chose to share with the World of UX audience on today. And so I had a little bit of a shift. Instead of just sharing three nightmares today, I decided to just share a series of nightmares that were all related to interviews. So we're just going to talk about interviewing nightmares and the purpose of sharing something like this, what somebody can get out of it is the fact that number one, it, it gets rid of that jaded mindset. It helps people to level set and and be very sober-minded. There are uh, a lot of great things happening in UX today. There's a lot of challenging things. There's a lot of things. People experience things on the line of these nightmares that I'm sharing, and and it floors some people. And sometimes they think that they're the only ones that are going through something like this, or there's a tendency to think along those lines. But we're sharing these nightmares with you so you understand that these things are real. They can happen at almost any given time. Yes, they are frustrating. They are highly undesirable. They are tremendously uncomfortable. But please know and understand that when you do experience a nightmare, I can't encourage people enough. When you incur- when you experience a nightmare, remember, to you fell off the horse. Get up. And, and it's not your fault that you fell off the horse. One of the things I need to really stress, even before I get into these stories today, is that when you don't get a job, when things fall apart at the interview level, when something happens and it it doesn't match what you wanted the outcome to be, there's a lot of people when that happens, they tend to, to, to blame themselves. They tend to be overly hard on themselves and we're here to tell you today, don't do that. There are a lot of reasons why things can go south at the interview level. And it's good to know and understand what other people experience so that you can digest it better. And when it does happen, and it will, I'm going to have bad interview experiences again over the course of my career. And I've learned over time, though, when it happens, hey, You just chalk it up to experience. It's a great learning experience. You learn something about that company. You learn something about yourself. You learn something about the people who work there. You learn something else about what's going on in the world of UX. And you get up and you keep going. Especially when you're trying to find that that first gig or you're in your early early days of your your UX career. And a lot of people tend to think that things are going to get better. As you as you progress, and, and 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 I'm here to tell you about that. Also, that's not the case at all. It's tough in the beginning. It can be tough. Some people do land gigs pretty easily and pretty quickly. We're happy for them. That's great. But a lot of people don't. And I, but I want people to understand that it doesn't really smooth out necessarily. It it it's something that is a challenge, and and there's a lot of things that contribute to that. But we want people to be level-headed. Disappointment, that's life. 
take the disappointment, dissect it, look and see if there's anything you can do to make things better or to, to improve from your end of things. But don't take it personally. It's not the end of the world. Things aren't over. Just get up and go forward. So are you ready? Let's get into some, some nightmare stories today from an interview perspective. Okay, ready? Here comes story number one. Now, again, as I have been doing through these memory lane stories, I'm not sharing any company names. Uh, if somebody figures something out, they're going to figure something out. But the way I'm telling these stories, I don't think you're going to get much information uh, that's going to help you to understand them. The only matter of fact, the only way that somebody might is if I've told any of these stories before and I might have mentioned a the company then. But other than that, for the most part, I don't think uh, anyone's going to be able to figure these things out. But again, it's more about the what than the who. So ready? Here we go. And the, the the first story that I have was I had an interview. This was for a major um, creative agency, what people used to refer to as ad agencies. And I had not worked at an ad agency for a while and was pretty excited about the prospects of returning to the ad agency world. I, I enjoyed working at agencies. You really didn't have very many UX maturity issues in the creative agency world. Uh, they, they do exist. In the creative agency world, creative agencies are not exempt from having UX maturity issues, but for the vast, uh, the vast majority of them understand UX, they understand where they fit. You don't have a lot of battles. You might have battles with a client, but you're not going to have battles internally. Uh, so that's one of the things I like about creative agencies. But at any rate, everything was going great. Uh, I, I went through several interviews that first day, I, I actually had four interviews. The first interview, fantastic. We got along great. The conversation was great. The The way that everything was, was flowing, the way the information was flowing, the interpersonal, the, the energy that, that I could perceive, everything was just fantastic. And then I got to the last interview, and that's where the nightmare came into play. I... I the person came into the interview and <laughs> it's funny how you can, you come, people come into an interview and they wear their attitude on their face. And again, as I said, we shouldn't take things personally when things don't go well, because sometimes it's not personal. There's, there are factors that have to do with the people who are doing the interviewing that come into play with the way that the interviews go, as well as the final decision that was made. So we don't want to take it personally, and, and but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't basically have these, what happened in these interviews uh, sort of stored in our minds somewhere because there are takeaways, there are things to to share with people, and, and that's what I got from this one. This person came into the interview wearing their attitude on their face, so something was wrong. What? I don't know. Uh, but I what I did discover was that that person wanted to hire their friend for this particular UX role. And so thinking about what I perceived, the attitude on the face, and finding out that this person wanted to hire a friend of theirs. Uh, so now we've got the cronyism that's at work in this play. And because the person wanted to hire a friend of theirs, they had absolutely no interest in conducting an ethical interview when, when I was there. They knew I had agency experience already. They knew that I was skilled. Didn't matter. Didn't care. I wasn't their friend. So it doesn't matter. It didn't matter at all. And the person began to ask me really weird questions, things that you would ask somebody that maybe had just graduated from school or from a boot camp or something asking ex extremely rudimentary questions that just, they, they were just really awkward. And, and so all of that great energy that I had perceived earlier in the interview all went out the window. We were asking, or people were asking me really good questions that led to fantastic dialogue and it helped them to understand how I thought, how I worked, what my skill level was, how I got along with people, all of these different things. But not when this person finished talking. It was it was pretty much over. 
But you know what? The nightmare didn't end there. I knew I wasn't going to get the job after I talked to that person. So matter of fact, that person basically, when people do things like that, they sabotage the interviews. So the interview became sabotage. They go back and give a bad report. Everybody else wants to hire you, but that one person doesn't. And, and it's really because of something they did or something they wanted to monkey wrench, not because there's something going on with the candidate. Uh, but it, again, it didn't end there. The recruiter gave me word that they decided to go with somebody else. And, you know, that's fine. That's their prerogative. We're supposed to roll with that. And I was ready to roll with that. What bothered me at the time was that this recruiter came back on to LinkedIn roughly a couple days later telling me that they had filled the role, that, that it was all set, and they decided to go with somebody else, and then gets on LinkedIn. I don't know. I, maybe she thought I wasn't out there. I don't know. But she began to try to basically start to recruit again on LinkedIn, and I reached out to her because I'm, I'm like, didn't you just fill this role? And the person is going out there and acting like they were trying to hire for this new UX role. No, they weren't. So we had this, a person who sabotaged the interview. And then behind that, we had a recruiter that was very disingenuous. And there's a lot of that. I, I, I talk about recruiters a lot. I know a lot of great recruiters, but I know a lot of really bad ones too. And I really feel for the good recruiters because the bad recruiters give the good ones a bad name. Um, but that's, that's, I guess that that's life too. But it was really sad to deal with this disingenuous recruiter who was trying to recruit somebody else as if I wasn't going to see it. And I reached out to her. And of course she ghosted me when I, when I inquired about the new position. So, but you know what, when that happens, I dodged a bullet. I dodged a bullet. Do you really want to work for a company? Cause if a company, and I say this from time to time, if a company mistreats you during the interviewing process, that's just a, a sneak peek of what's going to happen if you get hired there. And, and I also knew other people who had worked for that company and had things to say about that later. Yeah, I definitely dodged a bullet in that the company really, they treated UX people bad at that creative agency, which is rare that UX people don't get treated with respect in a creative agency, but it is what it is. I'm thankful to have escaped, <laughs> thankful to live, <laughs> to fight another day. So, oh, but that was it. And these are going to be short stories, by the way, because there's so many uh, that I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of great, uh, a great deal of time. I don't think I am anyway on any of these. In the next interview, and I believe I've told the story before, but there was a, a major, um, we'll just say a major company in the medical arena that was looking to move some of their, their UX operations, they were looking to open up an office in where I live in Metro Detroit in Michigan in the USA. And they were, they were interviewing before they even finished working on the, on the offices to the extent that we had to go to Panera bread for the interviews. And I went in for the interview and I saw some things during the interview that I thought were really strange that the initial interview was fine. You know, interview at Panera Bread. Okay, that's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. I didn't have any issues with the interview, but I just noticed that some people were coming in and they were dressed professionally. And some people looked like they just came over from shopping. It was really weird. And I remember in particular, this one guy that stood out who had on like, like it looked like he just came from the beach. He had on shorts, sandals, and but he was supposedly interviewing. And, you know, I see that and I don't think anything of it because I really don't know what's going on. I even maybe even question whether or not the guy was interviewing because of the way he was dressed. I talked to the recruiter. The recruiter, recruiter was keeping me updated and, and telling me how favorable things were looking. And I was excited because I wanted to go to, to this company. And But now it's time for the next level of interviews. And the next level of interviews was not going to be at Panera Bread. It was going to be with people in their office which happened to be in another state. And I can't tell you the state because then you will know who it is. So I'm not going to tell you what this state was. But the I, I, I went to this interview with the person, conference call interview, and the person spent the first five minutes or so just complaining 
because the company was opening an office in Detroit. She wasn't happy that the company was opening an office in Detroit. She was very frustrated about it. She felt that she was losing, they were losing some of their, uh, for lack of a better word, foothold on some of the UX work, and she was just frustrated, so she decided to vent to me for five minutes, which I thought was completely unprofessional, and it really took me aback, and as the first example, the person sabotaged the interview, so also did this person. This person, not only did they sabotage my interview and take the the conversations in a bunch of different directions, which had nothing to do with identifying whether or not you're qualified. Uh, matter of fact, she was afraid of me because I was qualified, and I got word that uh, I wasn't selected to move on, but that wasn't the worst part. Remember the guy I mentioned that I said would look like he was coming from the beat, like a beatnik, like a surfboard guy uh, in Michigan? And he was, they hired him. And but what I found out was that she was actually, not, she, I wasn't the only interview she sabotaged. She interviewed, or she sabotaged my interview and sabotaged other people's interviews because she was really, she was being really transparent when she was talking about how upset she was. What she didn't say was that she was going to see to it or do whatever she could to make sure that the the Detroit initiative would fail. So they kept hiring unqualified people to work in that office, hoping that the Detroit work would get shut down and it would be taken back to that one office where she was. So it was really, really, really sad that this big company, big medical company had, and it was unheard of at the time for people to hire unqualified UX people. It's very common today, but back then it wasn't, that wasn't, maybe it was the beginning of it, uh, but it was really, really sad, really, really strange when I found out that not only did uh, Mr. Surfer dude get the get one of the UX jobs, um, but I also found out that he had no prior UX experience, and uh, from someone who on the inside who knew what was happening. I do make it my uh, my business to find out data when I need it, so I understand what's going on out here in the world of UX, uh, so I can speak about things authoritatively. But yeah, he wasn't qualified. There were other people that weren't qualified and they were getting the jobs and people like me that were qualified were being left out in the cold and they wanted nothing to do with us because they wanted the work to fail. So pretty sad. Uh, akin to that, I have noticed that there are a lot of UX operations today and I've said this before and I say it again, there are people you don't know if they really want to hire real UX people. And I say that, and then on the flip side of that, there are companies that don't want to hire real UX people. They want to hire people that can fill UX roles so they can either manipulate them or they want to hire people into UX roles so they can make them a scapegoat. It's the whole glass cliff thing where they bring, that's usually directed at minorities, but some companies do that across the board. They bring people in, set them up to fail, for whatever their reasoning is. And and so that's why, folks, we can't get overly excited about UX jobs because it's going to be a, a some time before you understand how legitimate any supposed UX opportunity that you walk into really is. We try to identify, I was talking to someone earlier today on LinkedIn, it's like, how would, wouldn't it be great if you knew had a better idea of what a company was like during the interview process, but you can only ask so many questions. You're only going to be able to find out so much, and, and it's going to be a bit before you really understand what you've gotten yourself into. So that's why it's good. If you know somebody inside, ask questions when you're interviewing somewhere. Get that information, and, and there's nothing better than a person you know that's on the inside that's going to give you some of those insights because a lot of times the people who are interviewing you, they either can't or they won't, which leads me to my next example. There was a company 
that I interviewed for, and I thought this was a fantastic company, large company. I thought it was going to be a great thing to be able to work for them. I thought this was going to be perfect, and I could go there and stay for a long time. The interviews were great. Everybody I talked to was fantastic. And then I, I get ready to start. I hadn't even started yet, and the red flags start to come out. And the first red flag was that I was starting my job. I wasn't taking a break between jobs. And I was starting a job. So this is all, this is really a post-interview kind of thing, but an in-interview. It, it's sort of the way that I found out something. Like, anyway, let, 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 let me get this out because I, I just realized that this is an interview. Yeah, it's an interview story. So I, I got the job. And I'll get to the interview thing that's related to this in a moment. I got the job. And before I started, they asked me to, you know, would you mind starting in another city on your first day? We've got a big meeting, and I thought it'd be a great idea for you to come and, and start off by coming to these meetings and contributing in these meetings. Okay, so no onboarding, no nothing, just, okay, well, you know what? Hey, I'm a team player, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've decided to be a team player, and it comes back and bites you because... If you're a team player, but other people aren't really being team players, then you end up like sort of walking the plank a lot of times. So it's good to, if you're, if you're one of those people like me who is willing to do what it takes to vault the team forward, you need to make sure you're communicating with people and your leadership is in your corner or else you'll be out there by yourself trying to get certain things done. And that's sort of kind of what happened in this situation where I said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to come, but uh, who do I talk to to arrange for my travel? And this is a big company. This is a Fortune 500 company that I'm talking about. And, and <laughs> they didn't, they would not pay for me to travel. So they said, well, you can drive. I'm like, well, I'm not driving all the way to that city. I'm not doing that. So I got some frequent flyer miles that I can I can, I can put the work here so I don't have to worry about coming out of my pocket. I shouldn't have to use my frequent flyer miles either. But I thought I'd save a, f- a few uh, bucks slash points by getting some connecting flights. Boy, did that backfire. I, I ended, so I ended up spending the initial, my initial week at an office in another state um, on my own dime. So I, I, I basically paid for everything. And I did end up having to come out of, I had to pay for my own hotel. <laughs> so I had to, I had to cover that. Um, the flights were all out of whack. That's not their fault. It just turned out that way. The flights were all, the flights were all out of whack. There was delays. I didn't get in until two o'clock in the morning, which means that now I'm going to these meetings and I didn't get any sleep. So it was just interesting how all of this plays out. So I get down there. And again, we'll get back to the interview in a, in a moment here. But I get down there, I go to these to these meetings, and there's like the room is full of people. Like I'm talking 15 people roughly that are here in this meeting. And it was interesting that everybody there was a, like three or four leaders, and everybody else was quote unquote UX. And then I find out that these people were like all retrofits. Pretty much, there was nobody who had any real prior UX experience and now enter the, the, the interview aspect. So we go through the week. It was a really a sham, a sham of a week. Uh, it, it was really awkward and it was not, it, it, it was, it was, it was bad. It was a really bad, a really strange week. And those things happen in the workplace. So that's not necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm just calling it what it is. The part where the interview came to play was that, a couple of the people that I met when I was down there that week were some of the absolute, if I, if I had to come up with a top 10 list of the worst people I had encountered over the course of my career, uh, two of those people were part of that meeting. They were very abusive. They were very unprofessional. It, it, it's always bad when you start at a company and people treat you like you've been there for five years and you just walk through the door and their expectations are completely out of whack. And then the gaslighting comes into play. The mental abuse comes into play. The psychological abuse comes into play. And I know that's, that's, you know, six, one half dozen, the other for some people, but you know what I'm getting at. 
it's really interesting that I found out that they told me, on top of the fact that my boss left after a week, and a second person that I interviewed with that I thought was a really great person left. So two of the people that I interviewed with were transitioning into new positions and nobody told me. Uh, but that wasn't all they didn't tell me. I found out that these people that were abusing me during that week that I was in the other office, I found out that, and they flat out told me, yeah, we made sure to hide those, they literally said this, to hide those people from you during the interviewing process because we wanted to make sure that you would be interested in, in coming to work with us. And we knew that if you, if you had seen them, you might not want to come. And I had to ask myself, what did you think I was going to do when I found out about them? And when I found out about that, that you, you actually went out of your way to hide some of the team members from me because they're just terrors. They terrorize everybody. And everybody knows that they terrorize everybody. So you didn't want the new candidate to meet these, these terrors, these company terrors. So please know and understand, folks, you, you, it, it, we have to be willing to ask tough questions during the interview process. And how would I have known that? I wouldn't. But is it something that I think about now? Absolutely. I want to know what the team structure is now. I want to know who it is I'd be working with. I want to know if anybody is looking to transition out. Am I, am I interviewing with any short timers? Because if I am, uh, I want to know, maybe somebody, if they, they're leaving, they're leaving. Fine. I want to know who I'm going to be interacting with because that has something to do with with whether or not I'm willing to come into that situation because the worst thing that anybody can do is come into a toxic work environment, of which this was. The toxicity was off the charts. But so we have to ask questions to try to identify it because the number one driver of people leaving a workspace, the number one contributor to attrition is toxicity. Nobody wants to deal with workplace toxicity, whether it's a boss or a team member. Nobody wants to deal with toxicity, and a lot of companies, that's what they seem to specialize in. So we have to ask questions to try to identify what the level of toxicity is in an environment. So again, and that's one of the other reasons why we talk about these nightmares, the interviews in particular, because we can reverse engineer them to draw out questions to help us to learn something about other environments in the future. Next example, there was a situation, this was a really brief one, but I went to interview another really popular company. I believe this is a Fortune 500 company as well where I went to interview with them and I was really excited about the company. And we all get excited about big name companies, I think. And I've learned to not get so excited so fast about big name companies because a lot of times they can be some of the worst ones to work with actually. But truth be told, but I go to interview with this company and I arrive at the interview. And as soon as I come through the door, the person, she didn't know that I was of African-American descent and which was blatantly obvious to me. She had her head down and she was looking at the paper as she came to get me from the lobby. And when she saw me, her whole visage just changed. When she saw, there are people who have spoken with me on the phone and said that they don't realize that I'm African-American by the sound of my voice. I could tell you some stories about that, but I won't. But that has happened to me before. And I guess she didn't think, somebody didn't think, and I, does it really matter? I, I, no, it really doesn't. Uh, but to some people, to racists it does. <laughs> to white supremacists it does. But <laughs> uh, this woman, when she saw me, her whole face said, oh no, we're not hiring you. She had no interest in in being involved with an African-American candidate to the extent that after this interview, when the company wrote me to ask me how the interview went, because they wanted feedback about the interviewers, and I told them, you might, you might want to consider not letting racists interview 
Your candidates, not I left it. I never heard from them again after that. And then the funny thing about that is whether it's exit interviews or post interview feedback, does anybody do anything with that data? I don't know. I, I've never seen anybody do anything with it or heard anything about people doing anything with it. But at any rate, she was you could tell that she wasn't interested just based on look alone. And we went through the whole interview and she actually had the audacity. When the interview was over, she already made up her mind she wasn't going to hire me, so now she's trying to find excuses to to justify her her extremely biased and racist perspective. And she she actually had the audacity after seeing my work, me walking her through my work. She said, "Well, you know, uh, your work looks good, but I, I I don't see some of the more basic things." And I'm thinking, and, and what do you mean by that? She wanted to see wireframes and site maps. You know, all that stuff that you did when you first really started doing UX, the, the most the most rudimentary aspects of UX. She she I'm like, she she sees that I've been doing this for X number of years, and she's worried about that. She knew I was a professor at Kent State University, and one of my students worked for her. But she wants, you know that I can do, it, it's just interesting how people, the how they make excuses so that they can justify what's in their mind. It's just an interesting thing, but really sad. So, uh, but again, another, another nightmare. And I got my learnings, bullet dodge. Do you really want to work for her, Darren? No, I don't. Glad it didn't work out. So, well, we're on our way. Next example, I went to interview another Fortune 500 company. I do not have a lot of good Fortune 500 uh, stories, but I went, I, I hit it off, went to the interview. I really wanted to work for this company. I, I really was in love with their brand. I was in love with what they were doing with the division that I was going to be working with and the types of things I'd be driving user experiences for. I was ecstatic and wanted to work with them. And I, I hit it off with the hiring manager. We had some fantastic discussions, which made me even more excited about it. He was very thorough. He was very professional. He was concerned with my qualifications, my work history, whether or not I'd be a fit on the team, how well I interact. He was he was concerned with stuff that you're supposed to be concerned with when you're trying to hire somebody. And then it was time for me to move on to another individual to interview with another person on the team, and I got to say now, folks, I, I'm going to say it later, but I got to say it now. It's, it's interesting how many people, companies allow to interview candidates, and they don't train them to interview. The folks don't know how to interview. They don't know how to evaluate people during the interview. They don't know how to behave during interviews, and these companies still let them go out there. This person, after our standard UX-oriented banter, the person decided to give me some type of a psychological test in the form of a puzzle. He wanted me to solve a puzzle. Now, here's the problem with the puzzle is that there are some people who absolutely love puzzles and they spend a lot of time doing puzzles to the extent that if you use puzzles to evaluate your candidates, only the people who excel at the puzzles are going to pass your test, and those are the only people that are going to get that person's recommendation to be hired. But is that really the right way? The puzzles have nothing to do with the work. And and this puzzle was just ridiculous. And and I couldn't believe it. And I had all of these great interactions and all these great things happen with the with the mat with the hiring manager, but then I had this problems with the puzzle guy. And I came back for the second interview. And Puzzle Guy was there again. I had to meet with him again. And when I met with Puzzle Guy, he went to give me a different puzzle. And I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to have to pass on that. I, I, I'm not going to, to do a puzzle because it has nothing to do with me doing this work. And not only that, you're going to hire somebody. I didn't tell him this, but you're going to hire somebody who happens to excel at puzzles and they may not be able to do the UX work. Is that really what you want? Well, for him, yeah, that's what he wanted. And so it was really interesting. And we came out of there, same thing, great interactions with the hiring manager, terrible stuff with, with puzzle guy. 
and uh, I didn't get the job. But again, I dodged a bullet. 30 days later, that company's operation, that whole division of that company, that work was all moved to the East Coast. 30 days later. So I really dodged a bullet. And I, I was heartbroken that that didn't work out. But man, when I found found out that all the work was left, wow, I would have been gone in 30 days anyway because I wasn't going to the East Coast and, and you couldn't work remotely. So that was the end of that. So great for that one. There was another, moving on to another nightmare. There was a situation where I just showed up for an interview. This was going to be brief. I showed up for an interview. And it was, at this time, I was just looking for something different. and. I went to an interview. Uh, I won't even say where it was because that might even narrow things down. I started to, but I won't. And I knew that this was going to be trouble when, again, the, the first person I talked to was great. Second person I talked to was great. And I get ready to go into the interview with the third person. And this is in like July or August, like the hottest part of the year. And this person came into the meeting with a wool blazer, a scarf, and no socks. And and when I saw this person's, how eccentric this person was, I knew that I was in trouble. They, they were dressed like it was December, but it was July. And then again, they weren't dressed like it was December because he didn't have on any socks. But that eccentricity showed up during the interview. and And so that was just a, Quick, my a quick nightmare story there, but that's another one where I don't want to be here because I don't want to work with him <laughs> because something is that's you know you, everybody has a right to be as eccentric as they want. That's how I feel about it. That's you. That's your thing. But the eccentricity that he was demonstrating in his the way he presented himself was it also started to come forth during the interview, and I just began I started to disconnect more and more as the interview went forward. So just something else and to, to mention, you will come across eccentric people during the interviewing process. What you want to check for, because again, people have a right to be as eccentric as they want to. What you have to be on the lookout for is whether or not that eccentricity is going to be, uh, is going to be forced onto you from an interaction perspective. You, you want to wear a scarf in July and it's 120 degrees outside? That's on you. But how are you going to treat me? Are you going to treat me like you're some kind of aristocrat and, and you're the snob and I'm the I'm beneath you? Because uh, that's what that person started to do without me sharing any examples. That's what that person started to do. So that's the kind of thing that you want to be on the lookout for. Don't be so eager that you turn off your antennas. You need to be able to see what you're getting into so that you can be ready to make a good decision. Next story, and this one was another interesting one. Not a Fortune 500 company, but a really reputable um, retail brand that I knew and that I was excited to potentially work with. And I went to the interview, and everything was great. With the interview, we had some good discussions. And then I noticed something weird that happened. And this is, I mean, I could tell a few stories about this one, but I won't. Um, I just this one is good enough where we get to a certain part of the interview where, and actually, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. Everything went great. I interviewed with three different people. Everything was fantastic. It looked like it could be a great scenario. And I love coming into places where I can help build the, the UX practice. So that was something that was exciting to me that I would be doing in this particular scenario. And I left and I left looking forward to potentially coming back for the second interview. And boy, did I come back for the second interview. I got a call before I got home. I had to turn around to go back. They were that interested in me that they wanted me to come back right away. So I turned, made a U-turn, came back to the office, went in for the second interview, and that's when the nightmares began. When I went back for the second interview, there was something that was said that was completely off base. And, and this is something that happens because people don't know how to, they don't know how to evaluate UX talent. And I, I find it interesting that they called me back based on what he said to me that caused my antennas to go up, that big red flag. 
where they say, you know, you've got a lot of experience, even though most of it is academic. And I went, what? Why do you think most of my experience is academic? Why? Because I teach. I have today. I'm recording this on January 2nd, 2023. This will be my 28th year. I'm been, and I didn't realize I had that much experience initially, and I didn't used to claim it. I claim it now. This is my 28th year of doing UX-related work. And I've only been involved in academia for the last eight years, since 2015. This will be my eighth year in academia. Why in the world did this person assume that most of my experience was academic? As, as a side story, a side nightmare, I interviewed at another big company, Fortune 100 company, where I was being evaluated for a research role, and the team told the research or told the recruiter, and she let me know, yeah, you know, the team likes you, but they feel like, you know, your most of your experiences is with academia. I said, why, why would you say that? And they said, because you used to be a UX architect. UX architect, <laughs> back in, in, but prior to 2011, there were no specialists. If you were an architect or a designer, whatever your title was, information architect, UX architect, UX designer, whatever your title was, we did everything. We were generalists. So we did design. We did research. We did strategy. We did, if you were in UX back then, you did everything. And But these people assumed that since I was not a specialist, that I did not have the experience related to the degree or, or to the position that I was applying for. Where in the world did these people, and they had other people that were interviewing me that had no experience? It, it's, just, it's amazing where people's minds go and the conclusions that they draw when it comes to evaluating talent. The, the things that they come up with are just absolutely amazing. Another side story, which I'll bring in here, I interviewed for a, a UX manager's role for another big retailer, and I'm coming back to the other one before I'm done there. And I, I didn't move to advance to the next stage in interviewing because the director said that I didn't have any e-commerce experience, even though he never asked me if I had e-commerce experience, which I do. I have a lot of e-commerce experience, but he never bothered to ask simply because he didn't see the word e-commerce in my resume, which I do believe it is, he just assumed it. But it wasn't that he thought I didn't have the experience. It was like the other person that I just mentioned. He wanted to have an excuse to feed his bias because he actually only had 10 years of experience and was intimidated by me and didn't want me to, to be there. He, he didn't want to be looking over his shoulder at this guy with 20 some odd plus years of experience when he only had 10. And so that's happening a lot today, which is why a lot of teams, you don't see real seniors on a lot of teams because there's, there's one or more people on a lot of teams that are actually intimidated by the person that has a lot of experience and they don't want that person on their team. So, you know, the, the, the other folks, the younger folks are talking about, the, the new UXers are talking about being gatekept and being kept from getting certain jobs. It's actually the seniors, but we're not going to get in, into that today. We're the ones that, that aren't allowed. But back to the other story. So the person was, he thought that I had a bunch of academics experience, and I had to explain to him that he was wrong. Well, they never really snapped out of that mindset that they had. And the last I saw, of what they were doing, they instead of hiring a UX person, they were hiring a CX person, and they they were they had abandoned it. And I had heard some other things coming from them. They decided to just try to do the UX on their own. So they're going to go down the tubes with that, and they don't realize it. One of the problems with bad UX maturity levels is people don't realize that if you if you drop the ball with regard to how you decide to operate from a UX perspective, that's going to impact your bottom line, the bottom line of your business. And it's not a good thing. So folks need to be careful about their perceptions. Last two stories, folks. I interviewed for another Fortune 100 company. And I went to this interview, talk about a panel interview. It was only going to be one interview. 
It was going to involve beyond the screening. It was going to involve a, a an exercise, which they sent me beforehand, and I was supposed to bring the completed exercise to the interview, and then we would have our standard dialogue, and then we would wrap up by me walking them through my designs, and they would make their decisions after that. This is one of the weirdest interviews I ever went to in my life. It was the first time I ever did a design interview or design exercise for an interview in my career, and it was a really bad experience in that I did the interview or I did the exercise. I think I nailed the exercise. The exercise wasn't the problem. The problem was the the way that the inter, the team interacted, the way that the team carried themselves, the way the team represented themselves. One person went to sleep during the interview, and it was 9 o'clock in the morning. So it had nothing to do with being sleepy. The person was asleep. The person was gone. I, I'd never seen that in my entire career where somebody fell asleep during an interview, but one person was asleep. I mean, early on, too, the person was gone. Another person asked me a question that I absolutely couldn't believe. They asked me what I thought about patterns. Now, by the time this this interview took place, about this time, pattern libraries were huge. So were they asking about pattern libraries? No, they weren't. You know what they were talking about? And I had to confirm it. They were talking about backgrounds, patterns, that you could show in the background of a design. I'm talking 2002 when you would be concerned about what background you had and whether or not it was repeating across the X or the Y coordinates horizontally or vertically. They were asking me about that and I couldn't believe that the person asked me that. But it gets worse after that because that was just a really ridiculous question that, I mean, anybody could do that so you don't even... If somebody didn't know how to do that, if that was important to them, if somebody didn't know how to do it, you could teach them how to do it like in three minutes. That's not even anything that you want to bring up. That wasn't what made it so much of a nightmare besides the fact that one person was going to sleep and the fact that they were asking me weird questions. There was, because it wasn't just that question, there were other weird questions. There were nine of them in the interview. I've never been to an interview with that large of a panel, but there were nine people that I was being interviewed by the worst thing was the fact that there was a white supremacist on the team. And people wonder about that. We know uh, those of us who had to live uh, being victimized by and being targeted by such things. We know when we see certain things, he had his sleeves rolled up. He was sitting on the edge of his seat, leaning forward the entire interview, not because he was excited and getting into what I was saying. The look on his face said, I want to kill you the entire time. <laughs> so I'm doing, I'm going through this interview with this guy looking at me like he wanted to kill me the entire interview. And he wasn't really saying anything. He was just looking at me like he was crazy. And it didn't unnerve me. It was just a bad look. I, I thought it was a bad representation of the team. I don't understand what he was trying to do, but that's the way that he came across. And so you can go to an interview where people, they just don't know how to behave, folks. Some folks just don't know how to behave. And and by the time I thought that this was one of the best companies I could work for ever in my life, and by the time we were halfway through that interview, I'm like, I don't trust myself. That uh, <laughs> if this company ever calls me again, that I'll, I'll want to go back. I never want to come back to this company ever again in my life. That's that's the way that I left that particular interview. So it's pretty crazy. But last story, there was another company. And as usual, things went really, really, really well. And I interviewed with a couple people that were fantastic to talk to. We had great dialogue. They respected me. They understood what I brought to the table. I respected them. I respected what they brought to the table. I knew that they knew their stuff. I thought this was great. And then we got to a design exercise. And design exercises don't bother me. I, you know, I'm not even going to get into the details. They can be done wrong. I, I haven't seen very many that were done well. Uh, but in this particular case, it was not done well. And the thing that they did that was wrong was that this is a design exercise and it was led by the research team. That 
is insane. <laughs> that, that should not be done, especially in the day of the specialists, because back in 2008 and 2010, even 2011, we could, anybody could come to an interview and would have the skill, if they were authorized to come to an interview, then it was known that they had the skill necessary to evaluate the people that they were going to be interviewing in the circles that I was operating in. That was the case anyway, maybe at a startup. No, but at large agencies or at fortune 500 company. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you would expect people to be skilled enough. So if you had researchers who were, who were interviewing a designer, even though they were researchers, they would know enough by design to be able to properly evaluate the design candidate because this was a design position that I was that I was going in for that I was interviewing for, um, but to have researchers who are specialists who've never done anything but research, and I knew where some of the people who were evaluating me went to school, and I knew what they were producing from a student standpoint, so I was really a, highly aware of the the acumen levels of the people who were evaluating me. So on top of the fact that they really weren't equipped to evaluate me. Uh, and having the researchers run the design um, exercise, people were making weird statements that were like like threats and and uh, trying to be blatantly be intimidating and in things that they said and did. And so I noticed, you know what? I'm not going to get this job, and I don't want to get this job because this is letting me know that this is not a place I want to go, that a place that I want to work for. So I heard from the the recruiter after the fact after this abuse fest that took place during the interview process, I heard from the recruiter and she was great. As many recruiters are a lot of the recruiters I talked to, they're actually very nice. And she, she said, yep. So they decided to, to pass on you. Uh, and if you'd like some feedback, the, the, the interviewing team, they did give me some feedback and I can share that with you if you like. And I'm going, why would I want feedback? from someone incapable of providing constructive content on top of the fact that I really don't need to know anything in this case. You're not going to tell me at this stage of my career, you're not going to tell me anything that because I'm dissecting as soon as I'm done, I'm dissecting. Can somebody share something that I didn't see? Yeah, it's possible. It's always possible. Can somebody do it when they seem to be out for blood? During the interview, no, they're not capable. Uh, even if they are, I don't want it from them. I'd, I'd rather have that kind of content from somebody who's capable of doing it. So I let I let the recruiter know I passed. I said, no, I'd rather not get any constructive input from your team because or any feedback from your team because I doubt that it was really constructive. And I told her about some of the things that they did during the interview process that was, I mean, they, they, one of the things they did, here's an example, because somebody's going to ask me if I don't say this. Um, they, for the, they wanted to see the purpose of the design exercise was not to come up with the best solution, which is one of the problems with exercises, for those of you who might also be wondering, is that they usually have a very unrealistic scenario associated with them, where if the team is working on something, they're going to come up with, it's going to take them a week to three weeks to work through a problem that they ask you to do in an interview in 30 minutes. That is so grossly unrealistic that teams will, many cases will come up with the wrong conclusions because they're trying to evaluate somebody based on a faux scenario, a, a scenario that just, it doesn't match. It doesn't match what you're trying to gain about that, what you're trying to learn about that individual. And people don't, don't consider that. And it was funny how they said, well, the purpose of this is just for us to understand how you think from a design perspective. I was like, okay. So I just decided to use Adobe XD to do this design work in the session. And at the end, they said, well, why did you decide to, do, to use XD? I said, well, because it's the only one that I have on my computer since I have a, a, an Adobe Creative Suite license and I'm using my computer, not my work computer. I'm using my computer for the exercise and you're just trying to look at how I, how I work, right? You're not looking for the value 
necessarily the value of the solution that I'm driving, but so you, you're trying to evaluate the process and the way that I work. Isn't that correct? And they say, yes. I said, so does it really matter what tool I used? The tool doesn't matter. And, and that was where some of the abuse came in. They, they gave me some really abusive or responded in an abusive fashion when all was said and done. I'm like, these people, these people are not ready. And, and I got to say this as we begin to wrap up here, that it's funny how everybody wants to get a UX job and everybody wants to be in a particular position. And a lot of people, they crave, they, 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 they got to have some kind of a leadership role. And, and do you realize that a lot of folks simply don't know how to interact with senior UXers today at all? They, they don't know how to engage. They don't know how to respect. They don't know how to engage. And, and when I say they don't know how to respect, there's a lot of people who engage with more senior UXers. They're so used to talking down to everybody, and they're so used to telling other people how to do and what to do that when they come across somebody that they can't talk down to or somebody that they don't need to tell how to do something, that they find that offensive in and of itself. And then they try to, to, to create these false narratives so that they can feel more comfortable around the senior person. And, and it's, it's really sad. It's really sad. If you can't get along with a senior UXer, um, I'm not even going to spell that out today. I, I, I think folks can draw their own conclusion there. You should be able to get along with anybody. I can uh, he should be, and, and I'm not saying that because I can, you should. I'm saying that you should be able to get along with everybody because that's what it means. That's part of being professional. So we should be able to engage with anybody and everybody. But what I see and what I observe, not only because of what happens to me, but stories I hear and things that, that I see, things that other people see, is that people do not know how to engage with senior UXers. And, and it's not because of how, what we say and what we do. They know you're a senior and they just, people just find offense in that. And we didn't find offense in that when I was a junior UXer. And I think it's really sad and it's really extremely detrimental to the practice and to the discipline today that people can't deal with things like that. So I highly encourage people to be, make sure you're good at interacting with seniors. We just want to help. When it comes to the way, the dynamics, and we just want to help. We want to build our teams. We care. We're automatically caring about our teams, and we all we know if there is juniors, then we shift into that gear. We're we're ready. We're ready to contribute. We're ready to support. Uh, we're not throwing our weight around and and wanting people to pay homage to us and all that kind of. That's not what's happening at all. I haven't done it. I don't know anybody else that's ever done it, but I see people attacking seniors and, and that if we want UX to be healthy later on, that needs to change. It really, really, really needs to change. So at any rate, closing points, some which might be redundant. Many companies have absolutely no genuine desire to hire a bona fide UX practitioner. Folks need to know that no matter what your seniority level is, a lot of companies simply don't want to do that. And it's important to know it. Many recruiters and hiring managers have absolutely no idea how to recruit for UX roles. So you so that way, if, if you give them too much credit during the, the interview process, uh, instead of asking questions and taking that data and doing the right thing with that data, that can create problems. So you wanna be, you wanna be careful with that. Uh, don't make assumptions. And I don't care what the company is. I just told you several of these stories happen with Fortune 100 to Fortune 500. Some of them are Fortune 50. Some of these companies that where these things I just talked about happen, uh, you would think that it wouldn't, but it did. So don't don't think that a company knows what they're doing with regard to UX because many times they don't. And many people participating in the interview process have absolutely no idea how to interview people, absolutely no idea how to behave during the interview. They have absolutely no idea how to write job descriptions, so they copy bad ones from somewhere else. Uh, and so the job thing can be a bit challenging. And so there's a lot of nightmares, but how do you get around it? How do you manage it? First, love the discipline, love UX, enjoy it. Make sure you want to do the work and, and not just want to get a job because a lot of people want the job, but they don't want to do the work. 
So make sure that you're in the business of embracing the discipline and make sure that you're in the business of being ready to represent the discipline properly and go through that interview process and that job seeking process and maintain your professionalism at all times. That's all I can uh, I encourage you to do and be patient when things are not seemingly going in your favor. So that's it for the, the, the memory lane series. That's it for the, the interview nightmares. I had no idea it was going to take this long, but uh, it is what it is. So uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, but that is all the time that we have for today. And I'm excited for some of the upcoming uh, uh, episodes with some, some guests that we've got coming on. Looking forward to sharing with you there. But until next time, folks, that's all the time we have for today. This is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.